The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura. Thanks, John Berman. Nice to see you on a Monday. Happy Valentine's Day. You too. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. There's a heavy feeling in the air. Russia has amassed forces on three sides of Ukraine with an estimated 130,000 troops. And now, according to the Pentagon, this could be the week Putin strikes. I I won't get into a a specific date. I don't think that would be smart. I would just tell you that it is entirely possible that he could move with little to no warning. It's a scary thought, but there's still so much uncertainty. And the U.S. isn't taking any chances. They're now closing our embassy in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv and temporarily relocating remaining diplomatic personnel to a city now in the western part of the country. The only one, frankly, who knows what Vladimir Putin's going to do, well, is Vladimir Putin. And the only one who knows what Putin actually wants with Ukraine is Putin. He staged a televised meeting with his foreign minister, Lavrov, today at, by the way, another awkwardly long table for some reason, saying Russia is still open to diplomacy. And the Kremlin now adding tonight, Putin is still, quote, willing to negotiate. But one thing we know about Comrade Vlad, he isn't a peacemaking kind of guy. The authoritarian, well, he does what he wants. He wasn't bluffing when he annexed Crimea back in 2014. He now wants to send some kind of signal to the world yet again. But the big question here is what in the world is his endgame when it comes to Ukraine? And frankly, I know many of you are also wondering out there, what would a war there mean for America here? We're going to get into all of that, answer all those questions tonight. And the U.S. forces, by the way, aren't going in if war breaks out. President Biden has already ruled that out. But he is now sending a few more thousand troops to Poland to try to help bolster NATO's defenses. Now, the NATO factor is definitely a big part to all of this tension, as you well know, because Ukraine is not part of the 30-member alliance. But it most certainly wants to be, which is exactly what Putin feels so threatened by. See, Russia, they see NATO's growth across Europe and expansion eastward, and they view it, at least Putin does, as a giant threat. But the question is, even if it is a threat, would he wage an all-out war to try to push the West and, well, democracy and fair and free elections back as well? I want to get the view from the ground on in Ukraine. CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance joins me live from Kiev. Matthew, what are you learning there? Laura, thanks very much. Well, you know, as you mentioned there, tensions are extremely high right now uh, near Ukraine, inside Ukraine. uh, More than 100,000 Russian troops have gathered near the borders and that capability uh, of Russia to strike at the heart of this country is building on a daily basis, according to uh, US and indeed Ukrainian intelligence assessments. Uh, In fact, there's There's no dispute at all when it comes to the capability that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, has to do whatever he wants. He can invade at a moment's notice. But the real question that isn't answered is, does he intend to do that? We know he's got the capability. We don't understand what his intent is. And so there's um, a lot of speculation about, you know, will he he, uh, he, uh, invade 
or, or won't hear. And as you mentioned, the truth is the way Russia operates in the autocracy that is that country, it can be the 11th hour, the 59th minute of the 11th hour, and only then one man, Vladimir Putin, could decide whether or not to uh, to pull the trigger. And so you'd expect, wouldn't you, that in a city like Kiev, which is uh, the Ukrainian capital and which uh, is said by US intelligence assessments, for instance, to potentially be a target of any Russian attack, there would be concern and there would be panic. But we're not seeing any of it on the streets here. It's been Valentine's Day, of course, today. And, you know, I've been seeing you know, the hotel where we're staying at had a big party uh, for young couples with big red heart-shaped balloons in the daytime. The cafes were full. Uh, people were going about their ordinary business. What ordinary Ukrainians say is that they have been confronting this kind of threat for eight years. They've been fighting Russia or Russian-backed rebels for that period, and they don't see a significant increase in the risk. Um, that's been backed up, of course, by the Ukrainian leadership, who are at odds to some extent with yeah. the United States intelligence assessment. Uh, they're saying that the country should not panic, people should remain calm, and that the threat is not as acute as Washington is making out. Laura? I mean, it sounds like in some respects, the boy who cried wolf, if you're already having the presence always there. On the other hand, I mean, how do you not panic? How do you avoid feeling as though it's alarmist when you have 100,000 troops outside your border and the uncertainty of, of a Vladimir Putin? Matthew Chance in Ukraine, thank you so much. You know, the anxiety over this entire thing in Ukraine is clear when you see how senators from both parties reacted just this afternoon to a briefing from Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Listen. This is a very dangerous situation. The concern is very high. The only good news is that diplomatic uh, exchange continues. The forces the Russians have massed, they could launch at any point. I want to bring in Susan Glasser and former Congressman Mike Rogers, who was House Intel chair when Russia invaded Crimea. I'm, I'm glad you're both here because I want to try to unpack a little more here. Let me begin with you here, Susan, because on the one hand, you hear Jake Sullivan, you hear um, John Kirby, you hear, you know, everyone talking about it could happen at any moment. There is a feeling of imminence and urgency. Then you have reporting on the ground about the average Ukrainian who's saying, well, it's been eight years of this and not really batting an eye. Can that can both be true in terms of the impact of what's being felt on the ground there, Susan? Well, look, I think you're right to point this out, Laura, that, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, there is a moment of reckoning coming sooner or later. And the intelligence assessment suggests that uh, the Putin buildup on the border is is reaching maximum capacity, uh, more than 130,000 troops. Uh, there's reporting to suggest that many of those have actually left their bases and moved to forward attack positions along the border. Ukraine, there's three sides on which it's vulnerable to Russian attack, including from Belarus that would you know, really be even only a few hours away from Kiev and the capital. So you know, I think the military threat is real. I think Ukrainian officials do not dispute that. Uh, you know, senior administration official here in Washington assured me today that we are in fact on the same page with Ukraine, that this is mostly about uh, President Zelensky not wanting to induce panic for understandable reasons among his population. He's now declared Wednesday a day of national unity in Ukraine. They're going to be, you know, hanging the flag and singing the national anthem and, you know, recruiting in a very urgent level uh, additional essentially national guard to help defend the country. But what we don't know is whether Putin has decided 
finally right. on the go, no go decision. But, you know, this is not an idle threat. As someone said to me, you know, if it was any other leader in the world, you know, you don't just idly assemble an invasion force of 100,000 and not intend to use it. I mean, of course not. And Mike, that's a question. You know, you were in office, you were a congressman, and you were a member of a very important committee thinking about these very issues back in 2014. And I wonder from your standpoint, I mean, yes, Putin is known in many respects diplomatically, and being nice here, as a provocateur, but it's not as if he hasn't backed up a threat in the past. When you're looking and comparing then to now, are you seeing similarities? When you hear members of Congress being briefed, what are they being told, do you suppose? And is it much like what you remember, you think, back from 2014? Well, I don't think this is like 2014 for a couple of reasons. One, the Crimea event was more of an opportunity. He didn't have that same massive buildup that you see happening today. Um, it was an opportunity that he took advantage of. He had troops in the region. They moved in. They assessed at the time, they being the Russians, that they thought this was going to be a quick move. And remember, in Crimea, he had already established uh, uh, separatist forces. These were clearly proxy forces for the Russians. Well, he's done the same thing in eastern Ukraine. Uh, he actually holds two regions that are calling themselves separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. Lots of ethnic Russians uh, east of the Dnieper River, which would put them clearly in the sphere of those three attack prongs that you see. So this is, to me, is very, very different. And what I think people are talking about today and what they're getting today, and if you have, you know, they're trying to assess what this means, is he's moving these artillery pieces and his missile forces forward. And those missile forces are highly lethal and will be destructive in a way that you didn't see in Crimea. Crimea. Uh, you really didn't even see in his invasion of Georgia, the country of Georgia, this will be different. And if he decides to go over, it will be that shock and awe that you hear about often uh, in a very big way. He is not going to go timidly across that border if he decides to do it. He is. Yeah. Will he decide to do it? He's getting a lot that he wants right now by just being on the border doing these exercises. Susan, what is he getting from all of it? I mean, the, the question for many people is, what, what is the end game for Vladimir Putin? Obviously, we can all speculate as to what that would be. But for the average person looking at it, you're, many people are wondering, why Ukraine in particular? What will you get out of this? And if Mike is correct, which I believe he is, the idea of using the sort of lethal force, the discussions about the air bombing, et cetera, at the end, wouldn't you have to then rebuild the very area you're trying to capture under tremendous debt? I mean, what's the end game here for Vladimir Putin? Just the flex? Well, you're right to ask this question and to be very skeptical because, of course, it is madness to invade another country in the 21st century and the Death and destruction would not just rain down on Ukraine, but of course on Russian soldiers. Right. Uh, there would be great unhappiness, uh, you know, if the the coffin started coming home. Uh, Vladimir Putin would then have to spend huge amounts of money potentially to maintain any territory that he held. The United States has promised to, you know, help to support the resistance inside uh, uh, Ukraine were to come under Russian occupation. So, you know, it's a mess. Uh, we can. You know, tell him that the experience of Iraq and others uh, suggests that uh, uh, imperial ambitions like this do not work out well uh, in the modern era. So on the one hand, it seems madness that Putin would even be conceiving of it. Uh, you know, but remember, for Putin, this is almost an emotional issue as well. He I recommend to everyone to look at this essay right there on his website that he wrote uh, last summer 
essentially making the argument that Ukraine shouldn't even be an independent country, that that it arguably it should still be part of Mother Russia. He's relitigating the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse even before that of the Russian Empire. And in that sense, it's an emotional issue. It's a legacy issue for Putin, who's already been in power for more than 20 years. Yeah. He's 69 now. Uh, this is it, it's not something it's often mischaracterized, I think, as just a matter of NATO, not NATO. That's not really the right issue. It's very, it's very personal. Crisis. Well, it's very personal to somebody who wants to take over and be powerful. The idea of not having the power in hand is obviously very offensive to him and one that's emotionally. It's a great point. Mike, let me get the last word from you here. And the idea of how you think President Biden the commander-in-chief is handling all of this right now. We know it's not a part of NATO. As Susan talked about, it's not just about NATO membership or not. How do you think the Biden administration is dealing with this? Less than really six months after the Afghanistan withdrawal, we're talking about having a presence somewhere else again. What do you think the Biden administration is doing about this? Good job or bad? Uh, you know, mediocre at best. And I, and I don't say that lightly. Diplomacy is really the only option you have at this point. But one of the things I think they swung and missed, and they did this the last go-round in Ukraine, by the way, when so many of their national security people were there, is that the Ukrainians were saying, let us fight against this high-tech weaponry that we know the Russians are amassing on our border, and it's been trickling in. If you wanted to send a message that Putin is going to pay a very heavy price other than this non-conventional uh, kind of uh, rebellion type fighting that he's going to see coming up, which will happen, by the way. Uh, they needed sophisticated weapons to fight back against their missile brigades. They needed against this really long range artillery. They needed actually sophist more sophisticated weapons. And they've been asking for them. They haven't quite been getting them. And my argument is, if you want to tell Putin that this is going to be really costly to you, we're going to give the Ukrainians everything that they need to fight against your technical army that's amassing on that border. And, and the administration just hasn't done it. And here's a couple of things he's going to factor in. Unfortunately, when they took SWIFT, which was the access to the international uh, uh, money change, um, you know, banking system, when they took that off the table for sanctions, that was a huge relief to Putin. And so he knows that there won't be direct military action. He knows that the SWIFT won't be a part of it if he invades. All of these things, you know, he's going through his calculus. I think I can sustain sanctions. He's already Ooh. amassed some $600 billion in reserves. He's re-engaged his Chinese trading and natural resource sales. So he's looking at this like, okay, you guys are dwindling. Every, you know, you keep telling me what you won't do. Uh, and then you, it, it allows me to figure out what I will do. And I, that's what I worry about. I, I would have changed yeah. that early yeah. on three months ago if I were the Biden administration. It's more than worrisome. I mean, the idea of calling bluff with all the stakes that are in part of it, obviously, um, sounds like you just described the perfect scenario for leverage, which is concerning for everyone. Susan Glaser, Mike Rogers, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. You know, there's a major development in the trial of Sarah Palin versus the New York Times. So why would a judge now say that he's going to dismiss the former vice presidential nominee's defamation suit? And why is he still allowing the jury to deliberate if he's going to dismiss it anyway? This is quite a twist, and the case will take apart next. Well, something happened unexpectedly today in Sarah Palin's defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. 
Now, the jury, mind you, the jury has not yet come back with a verdict. But guess what? That might not matter because the U.S. district judge says that he's going to throw it out. The verdict, that is. The case, in fact. And Judge Jed Rakoff says that Palin's attorney failed to prove that the Times actually acted with what's called actual malice or knowledge that it published false information. But he will wait officially to dismiss the case until after the jury returns with the verdict. So what does all of this mean? Let's talk about with constitutional and First Amendment attorney Floyd Abrams. Mr. Abrams, so good to see you here tonight on this issue in particular. I have to ask you, what do you make of a judge throwing out this case? Did you think that Sarah Palin had actually even met her burden of proving not just that it was false, but that they did it with actual malice. What do you make of it? Well, I think the ordinary way to do it, I know the ordinary way to do it, is to let the jury have its say first. And if the judge disagrees with it, if a judge thinks that what the jury's done is doesn't take account of the First Amendment affected instruction that he gave them, he can set it aside. What Judge Rakoff has said is that he wants to give the appellate court, everyone knows this case is going to be appealed. Of course. And so he has said he wants to give the appeals court a chance to hear what the jury thought and what he thought. Uh, but now, it's really but on, not but the, that, the ordinary way to do it. It's, it's not. And here's the interesting yeah, part. The, the idea of sort of the timing of it. He could very well have come to the same conclusion yeah. after they returned a verdict. They could have said, you know, they could have found the New York Times not liable, and then it would have sort of been, well, he needs to say nothing. They could have said, and finding in favor of Sarah Palin, and he could have weighed in then. Because the timing of the judge's statements here, does it provide fodder to help Sarah Palin on appeal now? To suggest, well, hey, he wasn't even going to wait. He made up his mind already. I, I don't think it hurts uh, what he believes the right result is in that sense. I think, I think the practical problem here is that we may be being watched by members of the jury, that, that this broadcast, other broadcasts or the like, <clears throat> might already have told members of the jury uh, what Judge Rakoff thinks the right result is. Mm. And so the effect of that could be that the jury could be said to be unduly and thus unfairly uh, uh, led by the court uh, and the jury verdict therefore discarded, I mean treated as, as, as if it were uh, unduly influenced, unfairly influenced, all of which, you know, confuses things yeah. uh, and, and makes it, but puts us in a position where what could go up to the Court of Appeals then is only Judge Rakoff's so, decision. Which, but Floyd, let me ask you, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, go on. Is, isn't the, is the decision the right one, though? I mean, the judge has come to a conclusion about not being able to meet the burden. As you know, it's not enough for Sarah Palin to show that what was said was false. It was false. They have right. corrected the actual editorial as well. There's someone who's testified to say mm -hmm. it was false. They've corrected it later on. But the idea here that it was false was not enough. They had to actually prove malice. And she's a public figure, which is why there's a higher burden here. Do you think that she had any opportunity to have tried to prove that? And if so, what would she have had to have shown? Well, she had every opportunity to try mm -hmm. to prove it. Uh, she called witnesses. She interrogated through her lawyers, uh, the New York Times uh, executives, former editor who was in charge of this. 
So the, I mean, the evidence is in. Uh, she, she's had her fair shot at demonstrating what you rightly called actual malice, but what the Supreme Court has later explained means, you know, really publishing something you know is false mm -hmm. or that you have serious doubts about its truth or falsity, not malice in the way you and I would, would use the word. So judge, the, the judge has decided for himself, and there's nothing wrong with him coming to that conclusion. The judge has decided for himself, the case is over. They simply have not submitted enough evidence to meet this very heavy burden. I mean, the Supreme Court phrased it, you need clear and convincing evidence. And so the judge is saying first to himself, they haven't come through with that sort of evidence. This verdict, even if it is for uh, Sarah Palin, cannot stand. And all that uh, makes a, a lot of sense. The, the, the problem is now we're in a new procedural situation. Right. Where we're waiting for a ju jury to come back. The jury, as I said, might have heard what the judge thought, which, which you know, could lead an appellate court to say, well, look, we're not going to take account of the jury verdict at all. Uh, so what we've got in front of us is what will then be an opinion uh, well, of know, the judge. And it would be a real loss not yeah. to have a jury verdict sort of totally untainted. That's true. And it goes back to every law student can tell you what everyone says. The number one course is civil procedure, whether you like it or not. All comes down to process, <laughs> Floyd, in the end, every single time. But you know what? I wonder, just given what she was unable to prove, Floyd, and I'm glad you stopped by today. You know what? I, I wonder if her success definition was the idea of taking the New York Times to court. I mean, they haven't had a court, a trial going to, a trial in this instance for what, 50 years now. Now she's got them in court having to apologize. They've taken a real blow in many respects, but you're right. This is waiting for appeal. It's begging for an appeal. We'll see what happens once we've got a verdict. Floyd Abrams, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sure. Look, that's not the only big trial that's happening today. I mean, these other two are very, very big, and we're watching them tonight. Because even with murder convictions and the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, the legal battles are far from over. What makes these newer cases so important? I'll explain next. Well, the men involved in the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery have a lot more they have to answer for. And it's coming in the form of two federal trials that are underway right now. Now, while Derek Chauvin already pleaded guilty for violating Floyd's civil rights, this moment now focuses on the three other officers who were on the scene, some of whom you see right there. The two who helped keep Floyd down and the other who had a form of crowd control while he faced the crowd. Now, all of them, prosecutors say, all of them deprived Floyd of his right to medical care and his right to life. The same right that prosecutors argue was denied to Ahmaud Arbery on the basis of his race. Now, this moment puts our legal system to the test, really. How will it deal with people who have a wanton disregard for human life, particularly black lives, it seems? I want to bring in Ellie Honig, a former federal and state prosecutor, to help put all of this into perspective. Ellie, it's so good to see you and have this conversation with you in particular because 
a lot of people don't necessarily realize. They're wondering, now, hold on. First of all, in the case of the three officers who were charged in depriving George Floyd's civil rights, why was that not part of the state murder trial? Why are they separate and beginning with a federal trial? What's the answer? Yeah, so it's a good chart. It's a good question. And it's a procedural decision. These three officers are facing both federal and state charges, but they're starting now with the federal case. And I think strategically it's smart to do that because in some respects, the theory in the federal case is broader than in the state case. In the state case, they're charged as accomplices, meaning essentially they helped Derek Chauvin kill George Floyd. But in the federal case, they're charged under this really expansive theory that their liability is because they failed to help. They failed to intervene. They failed to render aid. So in some ways, Laura, that's actually a broader theory of liability and no conviction's ever easy, but an easier basis for prosecutors to get a conviction. And speaking of the ease of prosecution and conviction here, right? One of the things that's going to throw a bit of a wrench in the prosecution's plan, frankly, is the idea that at least one of these officers, we remember from the state homicide trial, was said to have essentially said, listen, should we, should we move him in some way? That prone position that was such a part of the last trial for Derek Chauvin, now about what role he played. And of course, these officers were less you know, senior. They were um, you know, of lower rank than Derek Chauvin. How is that all going to factor in here in terms of the way that the prosecution goes to this case? Well, Laura, as you know, when you have multiple defendants in this case, and we have three, what sometimes happens is the defendants will say, okay, who's the most sympathetic? Who can we most likely put up on the stand with the least risk? And the one not who Derek Chauvin. Like is going to testify here is It's not Derek Chauvin this in this officer. case, right? No. We know it's not <laughs> Absolutely him. not. No Derek Chauvin here. Right, right. No, he would be the worst one to put on the stand for sure. The one they're going to put on is this Thomas Lane, who was in his fourth day on the job when this happened. And he's the one who said, hey, shouldn't we roll him on his side or something to that effect? So I think that what the defendants are going to do is offer up Thomas Lane as their sort of spokesperson. Let's get to the Arbery matter as well, because that case, of course, we know there was a plea. They were on the cusp of having a federal plea agreement that would have at least 30 years in, in prison at a federal level. That was tanked by the judge. The family was not at all in favor of a federal plea going to federal prison. They wanted a full trial. But this is one that is based on racial animus here. This is a difficult case for even the most seasoned of prosecutors to be able to prove racial intent. Is this going to be a very difficult case, you think, here? It is going to be a difficult case, Laura, and it's going to be a very different case from what we saw the first time, because in the first trial of these three defendants, the issue of race was sort of there and in the background. But the prosecution in that case down in Georgia made a tactical decision to de-emphasize race. The prosecutor barely mentioned race, if at all. Here, race is going to be front and center, and that's because of the law. These defendants are charged with federal hate crimes, meaning they attacked, they killed Ahmaud Arbery because of their racial animus. And the prosecutors have said they have evidence that these defendants used racial epithets in the past. So the defendants are going to have to walk a very fine line here. They have to concede that they use those racial epithets and they're going to have to somehow argue, well, maybe they use racial terms. Maybe they are racist, but that's not why they killed this young black man. That's a tricky sell. Well, that's what the prosecutor came out to say. It's not about hate. It's about racial animus, right? Trying to distinguish that notion of walking that line. You don't have to hate, 
but I don't know how people are going to decipher the two. If you have racial animus to hunt and kill someone, I think hatred is sort of a foregone conclusion, perhaps, in many respects there. But Ellie, you and I talked about this case when it first came out, the idea of, I wonder what was behind the motive of the state prosecutors not to bring up race, maybe because they knew this was on the horizon and didn't want to do anything to compromise it down the road. Ellie Honig will stay with it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Let's turn to a much different conversation right now, although maybe there's a similar elephant in the room when it comes to race. History was made the Super Bowl halftime show, and hip-hop finally got a voice on the most watched stage on the planet. So how effectively did stars like Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and Mary J. Blige and Eminem, to name just a few, balance the music and, well, the symbolic messaging? We'll post-game with Bamaani Jones next. So for the first time, hip-hop took center stage the Super Bowl halftime show. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige, and a couple of other surprises. 50 Cent, well, he literally dropped in, recreating a scene from his very first music video 20 years ago. I can't believe that was 20 years ago, by the way. But one of the most talked about moments is this one. Eminem taking a knee seemingly referencing former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's stance against racism and police violence. Bamani Jones joins me now. He's the host of The Right Time with Bamani Jones podcast. So speaking of the title of your podcast, you've been waiting a long time. You actually tweeted about this. You've been campaigning for a decade to see this performance. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the mere idea, if you were around while they were hot, like the very idea that they would be in a place to be treated, honestly, with such an iconic status is almost bananas. Except if you remember that time, you realize how broadly accepted that music was in spite of the discussion of the controversial nature. By the time you get to the end of the decade, Dr. Dre selling seven million records with 2001. So like you think about the Super Bowl halftime, that's a place where you see like Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones. And you saw Dr. Dre in Los Angeles basically taking the biggest victory lap that none of us could have imagined at the end of the 1980s and in the early 90s. And again, I mean, some of the lyrics you're talking about, I mean, he had this line where he says, still not loving the police. Of course, that's a line that back then was so controversial. Now it's evergreen. It's part of an overall conversation right now. What did you make of the ways in which, frankly, there was different tones happening? There was Kendrick Lamar's tone in terms of what he was talking about. There was a, a, a lyric dropped. You had Eminem, the only white performer who took a knee in this in this particular thing. You had Dr. Dre paying homage in the keyboard to Tupac Shakur at one point. What did you make? of the different symbolic speech that was happening that night? Well, I don't know if it was nearly as much symbolic as much as demonstrating varying levels of privilege. The dude that had the least mm. money is the one that had to bleep out his police reference. That's uh, Kendrick? The one with the most, yeah, yeah, the <laughs> one that had the most money got his through, and then the rich white man, hey, man, if he wants to take a knee, what was they going to do? Send a security guard out there to tackle him in the process of doing it? Like, there was fundamentally a, nothing you can do to stop this element um, of what went on there. Like, I thought it was interesting that Eminem decided to do that, and I think the NFL made the right play, even if they weren't going along with it, acting like they were, like, peeved by it was not going to be something that ultimately won. But the thing did about they, wait, did, did they Dre, know, Bamani? You think they actually knew in advance it was actually cleared, or that he just did it and they weren't going to make a statement? If, he, if he's even In the past, he has been actually outspoken about supporting Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You think they were actually not knowing about it or that he cleared it in advance? What's your thought? 
Oh, I don't think that he was clearing anything. I think that he was like, hey, let me tell you about this thing I'm going to do. Yeah, we'd really like it if you didn't do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> See you guys later. And then it winds up happening. But what, like, with Dr. Dre, one thing Dr. Dre ain't never been about is actually making any sort of statement. Like, I think it would have been a bad look for him if he had been come out there and bleeped out the line about the police, because it's actually, like, that ain't the real line about the police that he and his people had offered over a course of time. But who was going to stop him at that point? If he wanted that and it was to put my foot down, either this is going to be it or I'm not doing doing a performance and it was going to get through. Now, of course, this is on the backdrop with the Brian Flores lawsuit. And by the way, the Brian Flores lawsuit was on the backdrop of another issue we've talked about in the past, Bamani, about the disproportionality between the number of black players and players of color and those among the coaching ranks and, of course, ownership. Does this move a needle forward for you or was this just to be compartmentalized in the grand scheme of thing for entertainment? And the NFL has a whole nother Thing they have to worry about and a really important one. Oh yeah, that was just a concert, right? Like they had just reached mm. a point where people were feeling like the halftime show had gotten a little bit lame and so they decided to bring in some cooler people and get themselves a cooler halftime show and that's what they got here. That didn't really have anything to do with anything else that's going on, I don't think. And part of it for me is I don't think the NFL cares that much about whether or not the public at large thinks it's a racist institution. If they did, it wouldn't have gotten to the point where people are talking about it so much. They want to put on a halftime show. They went ahead and did that. What they do want to do is stay out of court. And nothing about that halftime show is going to keep them out of a courtroom when it comes to Brian Flores. For the record, J-Lo and Shakira, I'm not the one who called it lame. I just want you to know, Bamani, I'm not uh, with you on that one. I'm going to leave it alone. I just want you to point out that I didn't say no names and you just decided You did not. I'm just thinking about America. I'm just thinking about the most recent ones. All I'm saying, because I'm a forever J Lo and Shakira fan, but I love them too. But Monty Jones, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, he did I'm, not for yeah, the record that, call anyone out. This is Laura Coates saying it. But Laura Coates yeah, has said it. I was about it. to say, I guess I'm a thank you now. It just took a turn for me that got a little risky. No, it's not risky. No risk. Risk averse here. Thank you so much, Bamani Jones. All right, dog. No. Listen, four years ago today, we had 14 students and three staff members who were murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. It's been four years since that day. And yet promises to help curb gun violence from some of our leaders since then, well, they've been just that, promises. So what happened to action? I think Congress, well, it's time you could use yet another reminder, and I'll bring you one. Next. So today I wished my children a happy Valentine's Day as we scrambled through our morning routine. Backpacks were packed, lunch notes were written, more than a dozen kids at the bus stop excitedly showing each other their Valentine's Day shoe boxes they made to hold their Valentine's treats. Each of them was giggling as they climbed up the bus stairs. And as parents, well, we stood there waving at them, talking amongst ourselves as they drove away. Four years ago today, parents in Parkland, Florida, wished their children a happy Valentine's Day. Then the phone calls came, the sirens, the breaking news bulletins, the screams, the reunifications, the silence, the coffins. Every day in America, parents say goodbye to their children. And on the one hand, we take for granted that they will be safe inside of a school, in a classroom. On the other hand, we know all too well that there is simply no guarantee. I remember holding my three-week-old son while I watched the news that 26 people, including 20 
children had been killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Three years ago, I held my kindergartner's hand as she was proudly showing me around her classroom, her desk, where her crayons would be. And I had to try to collect myself when I saw that her seat was directly in front of the classroom door. And the first thought that came to mind is if a shooter found their way into her school, my daughter would be directly in his path. Now these are the thoughts of parents today. And not just because of Sandy Hook, but because of Columbine, Virginia Tech, Parkland, Oxford, and the more than 850 incidents of gunfire on school grounds over just the past decade that have killed at least 281 people and injured hundreds more. This rise in gun violence isn't imaginary. It's not media hype. The reality is, back in the 70s, mass shootings took eight lives a year on average. That average has now shot up to 51 from 2010 to 2019. That's according to a nonprofit funded by the DOJ. So while we adults mark our time according to some five-year plan, our children often think in groups of four, four years of high school, four years of college. And I suppose there was some renewed sense of hope when President Biden asked for the opportunity to lead for the next four years when he said things like this on the campaign trail. We're now working on making sure that we provide children the ability to avoid being shot in school. What does that say about our soul? I'm so tired of people talking about your prayers. Damn it, we have to protect these kids. If you elect me your president, not only am I going to get the assault weapons ban back and limitation on clips, I want to say to our friends, gun manufacturers, I'm coming for you. And yet today, a Parkland father climbed a crane above the White House, unfurling a large banner with an image of his son's face to try to get an audience with that president. And it's not just the president, by the way. Far too many parents and students have had to grace the halls of our Congress, hoping to get legislation passed to keep our children safe, to protect them, and still, it's not enough. Because instead of kissing their children goodnight, they are getting more promises on gun reform. Inaction in Congress and lip service from the NRA about a civilized society. Why should it be on our kids, the victims of such tragedies, to push for meaningful solutions? Frankly, if I could say one thing to the president, it's that we need you to go out and act right now to, before the next Parkland happens, because there are things that you can do right now to help prevent it that you have not done. We need you to make good on your promises because kids are dying. Now I'm gonna tell you, I, I tucked my children into bed tonight and I got to giggle with my daughter when we made sentences out of candy conversation hearts. I got to watch my son pretend to get sick as he read the love notes from his fan club in his class. And two parents, my husband and I, we still got to hear themselves and ourselves being called mommy and daddy. But tonight, I want to honor those who didn't. Honor you for your fight, 
for your children, for what today means to you. That you will no longer just be extended thoughts and prayers, but action, prevention, change, and love. We'll be right back. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight with Don Lemon starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.